This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Jessica Lynn Pearson about her fantastic new book called The Colonial Politics of Global Health, France and the United Nations in Postwar Africa. It was published last year by Harvard University Press. Pearson's book is an innovative and extremely interesting foray into the history of global governance. This is no small feat. The scale and dry bureaucratic language of international organizations have too often frustrated historians trying to piece together their past. The colonial politics of global health steers clear of these obstacles and tells a big but empirically rich story about the relationship between empires and international organizations. She shows how European empires resisted global health initiatives in the 1940s and 50s, and how that resistance continues to affect public health in sub-Saharan Africa to this day. The book would interest historians of empire, medicine and health, and international organizations. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Jessica Pearson about her fantastic book, The Colonial Politics of Global Health, France and the United Nations in Postwar Africa. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I was deeply impressed by the book, and I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to talk about it today. Um, just to begin, how did you end up doing a PhD in history? Um, that's a really good question. So um, I've actually wanted to be a historian since I was eight. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, but when I was eight, I thought that a historian was someone who knew a lot about the Roman emperors and their wives and Roman architecture and went on the History Channel to talk about those things. Uh, so my, my life plan was that I was going to be someone who knew a lot about the Roman emperors and their wives and that I would go on the history channel and, um, <laughs> and talk about those things. Um, so I ended up uh, going to a high school that didn't offer Latin. So I ended up taking uh, Spanish, French, and German instead. Um, and when I when I went to college, I went to Kalamazoo College in Michigan as an undergraduate. And I, um, I ended up double majoring in uh, French literature and French history. Uh, I went on study abroad to France. And then I, I wrote my senior thesis about women in the French resistance. So mm. And I actually, um, I was really thinking that I would do a PhD in the history of women and gender, and that was my plan. Um, and then I applied to the Institute of French Studies at NYU to their master's program, just as sort of, um, just on a whim. Um, and when I was a senior in college, I got a telephone call from Herrick Chapman, who ended up being my, uh, my dissertation advisor. And it was really because of that phone call that I decided to, um, 
do the PhD in history and French studies at NYU. And that's um, really, I think, why I am a French historian today was because of that call. So. Wow. I, I think you might hold the record for wanting to be a historian at the youngest age. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and uh, so your, your book traces the transition from colonial health systems to global health. Um, and you show how colonial powers fought this form of decolonization by trying to um, keep international organizations such as the UN and um, the World Health Organization out of their colonial territories. The book has an extremely tight thesis or set of theses that stem from uh, really deep archival research. Like, how did you stumble upon this topic in the first place? Like, did you know that there was a story um, here before you got into any archives? So I think when I started the project, I was thinking that I would be writing about, um, I think I made some assumptions about uh, both public health in Africa and um, what international organizations do. Um, and actually, the for people that have studied international health organizations, they'll know this, but um, the, the very first international health meeting um, ever took place in Paris in 1851. Um, and it was really about sort of harmonizing quarantine policies among different European countries. And it was sort of weird because actually there wasn't really an agreement among the scientific and medical communities about what caused disease at the time. Um, and it was really um, a lot about uh, international politics and, um, you know, the French kind of coming off the Second Empire, or sorry, the uh, Second Republic, and uh, really wanting to show that they could uh, play along in the international system. Um and so sort of fast forwarding almost 100 years to the end of the Second World War, um, when I started thinking about what uh, global health cooperation might look like after 1945 and what role the French might play um, in that cooperation, and especially the French Empire, I was really thinking that I would see um, the French playing a really critical role in building global health cooperation in Africa. Um, and what I found actually was quite the opposite. So it was really sort of in doing like a deep dive into the archives that I realized, you know, what I expected to find, um, which was all kinds of cooperation happening in Africa, being led by the French, um, wasn't what I found it on. And so this was sort of the, I, I, I like to do this thing with my students called history mysteries. Um, hmm. And so this was kind of the history mystery that I wanted to unravel. Um, why, why wasn't the WHO more involved in um, building global health uh, programs in Africa immediately after the Second World War? Um, what did this have to do with the broader context of sort of the impending decolonization of Africa and how, um, sort of what role were the French playing in this? Hmm. And, and so um, you say that uh, it was um, your time in the archives that um, kind of challenged your assumptions about um, uh, the history of global health, was there a particular document or a particular archive um, that was um, really um, uh, transformative in, for your thinking uh, on the subject? That's a good question. Um, I actually used a lot of different archives. Um, I think... Uh, I think what was most helpful for me was getting to see some of the uh, the internal correspondence uh, at the diplomatic archives at La Corneuve, um, just outside of Paris. Um, I think when you're looking at uh, the official records of organizations like the UN or the World Health Organization, you're kind of seeing the, for the most part, the sort of final sanitized takeaway Um as it were, from a particular meeting or a particular debate. And what was really 
Uh, illustrative for me was seeing all of the sort of back and forth that went on uh, before these meetings happened. So um, just to give a couple examples, oftentimes before, um, so one of the, one of the committees that I study is called the um, sort of in classic UN fashion, it's the UN special committee on information transmitted from non-self-governing territories. And this is essentially a, a committee that collects reports from the colonies on educational, economic, and social conditions. Um, and whenever that committee would meet, uh, the colonial representatives to the committee would have like a pre-meeting where they would strategize about what they really thought was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of one of the uh, kind of examples of, of the sort of back and forth before the like official UN meeting um, and then, uh, so this didn't make it into the book, but I wrote a separate article about uh, the history of the World Health Organization in French North Africa. Um, and one of the things that they were really worried about, so um, they they really wanted uh, Morocco and Tunisia to go to the World Health Organization and say that they thought that they were French. Um, and, and in exchange for doing this, they said, we will propose you for associate membership of the WHO. So like, we're all getting something out of this. Like we have people from our empire coming to an international organization and saying that they think of themselves as French. And then um, you're going to be able to be represented in some capacity at this organization. But one of the things that they were really worried about is that uh, Moroccan and Tunisian doctors would go to Geneva, they would go to these World Health Organization meetings, and while they were there, there would be Egyptian doctors or Pakistani doctors or Indian doctors that would be trying to convince the Moroccans and Tunisians that they weren't really French, um, that they were either part of some kind of broader Arabic-speaking world or the Eastern Mediterranean region of the WHO. And so there was this whole extended back and forth um, in one of the years uh, between various French officials about how were they going to make sure um, that the Moroccan and Tunisian representatives didn't talk to people from these other delegations. And so they were going back and forth with this whole list of like, you know, one day one of us can take um, the Moroccan representative on a picnic in the park. And then another day someone can take, um, you know, the doctor from Tunisia to the circus, like during the, you know, the downtime between the various meetings. And so just the sort of uh, level of, um, kind of planning of how they were going to navigate these different political situations. I think being able to get that glimpse in the archives of sort of how they were thinking about this was really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to take a step back um, uh, before we go any further. So your, your book is about, um, you know, the 1940s and 50s, and uh, it's really about, um, uh, you know, decolonization and, you know, France's battle with these international organizations, which they thought, uh, which the French thought were um, going to be, um, you know, vehicles for decolonization. But um, I just want to um, hear a little bit about why health and like public health mattered so much to um, sort of uh, um, the imperial mindset. Um, uh, why were the French so worried about health policies? Yeah, so the answer to that, um, that's a really important question. The answer is sort of twofold. So the first part is that um, after 1945, the whole sort of rhetoric about the civilizing mission that we're here to civilize Africa um, more or less falls away. And it's essentially replaced by this discourse about the kinds of expertise that the French have to offer um, people who were colonial subjects and now after 1946 are now citizens of the French Union. And so this idea is that, you know, we're not here to civilize you anymore, but we're here because we have this particular expertise. And that could be expertise about um, 
you know, structuring education. It could be expertise about how to build urban infrastructure. In this case, it was expertise about health. Um, so that's the first part. And then the second part has to do um, with a really important distinction in the UN between two different kinds of colonial territories. So um, at the UN, there are a select number of territories that fall under the umbrella of UN trusteeship. So trusteeship is the successor to the League of Nations mandate system, um, which Susan Peterson writes about in her book, The Guardians. Um, And essentially, those um, trust territories were territories that, um, at least in the African case, were were former German uh, colonies that were lost after the First World War. They became mandates. And then um, with the creation of the UN, they became UN trust territories. Um, The UN could do two specific things with regard to those territories that they couldn't do for any other territories. And so um, in the case of Africa, we're talking about territories like Togo, Cameroon, Tanganyika, Southwest Africa, um, and Rwanda or Rundi. Um, And the two things that they could do is they could hear um, petitions from people living in those territories. So there was a sort of direct line of communication And the other thing they could do is they could send visiting missions to observe conditions on the ground. Um, And this is uh, eventually going to be part of this uh, answer to the question of of why health. So um, the UN couldn't send visiting missions to any other colonial territories in Africa, only to that sort of select group um, that that were um, under the... uh, sort of administration of the UN Trusteeship Council. So there's really no way for the UN to get eyes on the ground in any other colonial territories. Um, Now, when we're talking about the WHO, that's a different story. So um, I think one of the things that that people think when they think about what the WHO does is they think the WHO gives money to support health programs around the world. Um, And while the WHO does give some money, um, especially after 1945, that wasn't the primary thing that the WHO was doing. Um, The WHO really wanted to send experts to help develop health infrastructure uh, around the world. And um, when the French are looking at this unfolding, they're thinking about, okay, so the UN can't send uh, a visiting mission to Senegal or um, to the French Congo, but the WHO can send a visiting expert to teach a Senegalese person how to operate a DDT sprayer. And what they're thinking is that these um, health experts are going to potentially be sort of um, agents of anti-colonial activism on the ground. And so I think that's one of the reasons that they also get very hung up on this question of health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um um, just, just to uh, think about this a bit, um, a bit more, um, so the French are insisting on a very particular French expertise in matters of, uh, of health um, pertaining to their territories. How does that expertise um, or like that like philosophy of health differ from um, the, uh, the idea of public health uh, international organizations like the WHO? Yeah, so I would say that this was when I was writing the book, this is probably the question um, that I got asked the most. Um, And I spent a long time thinking about this, uh, about whether or not the French actually, in fact, had some kind of um, specific approach to public health that was different or some way of thinking about this that set them apart from uh, their colleagues in the World Health Organization. And I write about this in the last section of the epilogue. Um, and uh, what I landed on in the very end, and this was this was the very last thing I wrote before I submitted the final book manuscript, but um, 
I don't actually think that they had a different view of public health or a different approach to public health than anyone else. Um, I think that what's significant is that they thought they had a different approach to public health. Um, and this is connected, uh, you know, to this, this sort of 11th hour effort to hold on to the empire um, after 1945. Because if you think about it, you know, if a Soviet or a um, Swedish technician can offer the same kind of expertise as a French um, doctor or public health official, and if what they're trying to do is to say that, you know, the reason that the empire should keep going is because we have some kind of um, deep knowledge of how things work here and we have some kind of expertise to offer that no one else can. Well, if all of a sudden, um, you know, someone from a different country can offer that same kind of expertise, it really kind of undermines their um, argumentation for why they should get to hold on to the empire. Um, so I think that that's why they're so um, wedded to this notion that the French have something really specific that they can offer in terms of health, uh, because it's really connected to the way that they're, um, they're continuing to justify uh, colonial rule after 1945. Hmm. You have a, a very particular reading of the UN Charter. Um, so the UN Charter is riddled with um, bureaucratic language, but you think that within it, uh, there was like the potential for um, supporting decolonization. Um, can you say something uh, a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think um, I think one of the things that's really important to note is that a lot of the scholars that have studied the UN and decolonization have um have come at it uh, from the perspective of the British Empire, and I think that the British, I think the British colonial officials felt much more uh, kind of confident and secure in their position going into um, the deliberations in San Francisco that ultimately um, resulted in the um, the the UN Charter in 1945. But I think that the French. Uh, the French felt much less confident in the, in terms of um, the stability of their empire and their sort of geopolitical position more broadly. Um, and I think that they were a lot, uh, I think they were a lot uh, warier of, of the various loopholes that they saw in the charter. So um, the charter talks about uh, a sacred trust vis a vis colonial territories and the kinds of responsibilities that uh, colonial governments have to those territories. And I think, um, I think for the British, I think that sort of vague language was in their minds a continuation of what they sort of felt they had with the League of Nations, which was an international organization that was fundamentally, um, as Susan Peterson has argued, uh, going to preserve empire. Uh, and I think that really vague language about, you know, a sacred trust and, um, they're supposed to promote self-government. Uh, I think the French read into that a, a much wider range of possibilities in terms of what role uh, the United Nations could potentially play in unraveling, uh, unraveling their colonial empire. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you, the historian, do you think that the, the UN um, uh, was a, uh, a threat to empire? I think given the broader range of participants, even in 1945, um, I think that the, even even from the outset, the UN had uh, the possibility to uh, pose a greater threat to empire than, say, the League of Nations when the League of Nations was created. Um, 
I believe there were 50 nations that participated in the San Francisco conference um, and that signed onto the UN charter. So I think even thinking about that moment, even though you still have so many people um, in 1945 who are living under colonial rule, I think that there was definitely more of a potential um, for the UN to play uh, an important role in um, in decolonization. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That, that was a very loaded question, I will admit. <laughs> um, so one of my favorite stories that you uncover in your book is how the World Health Organization set up a regional office in Brazzaville, which was the capital of um, French Equatorial Africa. Um, and this was one of the most controversial decisions in the post-war moment um, in regards to global health. Um, there was a lot of resistance to locating the office in um, uh, in the French ter- territory. And so I just want to read a letter or an extract from a letter that you include in your book. Um, it's from a colonial health official writing to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, he, he writes, it would not take long for uh, Africa office to grow in size and to become a pool of attraction for all our African troublemakers, both political um, and medical. There, they would find a ready audience, and the only possible outcome would be a decline in our, in our own authority to the benefit of this international organization, whose critique of our sanitary project would be facilitated by multiple contacts with our malcontents. Can you contextualize this sentiment? Um, why was uh, this colonial official so worried, and um, how, in spite of this initial French resistance, did Brazzaville get the office? Yeah, um... That's a great quote. That was one of my, definitely my uh, most helpful sources. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think sometimes when, when we're writing diplomatic history, it's easy to fall into the pitfall of talking about the French or the British, um, the Americans. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, you know, as, as I, as I, this began as my dissertation and um, obviously did a lot of work on revising it to um, publish it as a book. But over time, I think one of the things that, um, colleagues really pushed me on was to sort of problematize this notion of the French, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not all French officials or French people felt the same way about um, the role that the World Health Organization might play in Africa. And one of the most interesting divides that I saw was between French colonial officials who worked at the Ministry of Overseas France in Paris and the people that worked on the ground in Africa. So it was actually um, originally a Belgian proposal to put the office in Brazzaville. So um, the Belgians knew that uh, because of human rights abuses in their empire, that the WHO was never going to set up shop in Leopoldville just across the river. Um, And so they they liked the idea of of being able to sort of have access to this international institution. It might be good um, economically. It might be good politically. um, But they know that the WHO is never going to go for Leopoldville. So it's actually the Belgians that put Brazzaville up as a possible candidate. Um, as you can imagine, uh, the so there, the only um, the only uh, 
member of the Africa region that is not controlled by a colonial government is Liberia. Um, the Liberians don't want anything to do with any of the colonial capitals. Um, they propose Monrovia as the headquarters. This goes back and forth for a really long time. Um, What's really interesting about Brazzaville is that the colonial officials on the ground uh, in the French Empire do not want the office in a French territory. They say, you know, put this office as far away from us as you can possibly get it. Put it in Monrovia. Put it in Kampala. Um, we don't care where you put it. Like, just don't put it in one of our territories. Um and the French officials in Paris are thinking about this differently. They are sort of thinking along the lines of keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. So um, what ultimately ends up happening is that the officials in Paris went out and they decide that the best way to keep tabs on this organization that they see as potentially anti-colonial is to put it in one of their capitals. Um, so either in Brazzaville or in Dakar. So they put it in Brazzaville um, and and. Once things get going, they immediately regret it. They realize they don't actually have a way to control this organization. Um, you know, while they can monitor what it's doing, they don't actually have the kind of control that they were thinking they would have. So um, I think this is a really important example of um, even within, um, you know, the French, you have very different perspectives on how to approach these questions. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, and so um, just to uh, finish off that story, um, so the office, uh, you know, is established in Brazzaville, and you write that it became uh, a colonial public relations crisis of global proportions. Um, can you talk about this? Yeah, so... Um... I think I think one of the things that sometimes ha happens when you're writing a history is you're, you become so immersed in your documents that you... Um, you start to kind of absorb some of the perspectives of the people that you're reading. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And so I think like I kept reading all these documents about how great Brazzaville was. Like the French really want to sort of uh, put forth this notion that you have this like modern colonial metropolis and um, everything works great. There's, you know, great shops and a great cinema, a modern airport. Um, you know, everybody gets along. You don't have segregation. Um, and I think one of the one of the things that was really helpful when I got the um, uh, when I got the readers' reports from the uh, two people that reviewed the manuscript was to kind of push me to think about well you know what was Brazzaville actually like um, and and this is kind of connected to this idea of a kind of colonial public relations crisis so so Brazzaville was was nothing like what the French kind of put forward when they're debating where they want to have the headquarters. Um, it's extremely segregated. Um, you've got you've got people that are coming from Europe or the United States to sort of staff the office, and you've got white employees of the office going across the river to go out at night in Leopoldville, um, not taking their African colleagues, of course, with them. Um, and so the sort of uh, reality of this kind of like post-racial utopia that the French were putting forward when um, they were deciding on the headquarters really didn't reflect the reality of what Brazzaville was like. And so I think, you know, they did actually end up inviting these international bureaucrats to kind of get set up on the ground. And, and they were actually able to get eyes on the ground to, into the um, realities of what life in the colonies was really like. And I think part of the reason that this was so po problematic for the French was that after, um, and I mentioned this earlier, but after 1946, the whole idea of the French empire is supposed to have kind of fallen away. And it's been replaced with this notion of the French union, 
And on paper, Africans are supposed, everyone in the empire is supposed to have equal rights, um, equal rights of movement, um, equal labor rights, uh, the right to vote. And I think that um, the ability to see the persistent inequalities on the ground, that was what uh, perpetuated this um, sort of colonial public relations crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it just also seems like there, I mean, there are just a, a, a whole gamut of problems from, uh, you know, I guess like they were complaining about lack of entertainment, uh, lack of infrastructure. Um, the housing um, was uh, uh, was really problematic. And, uh, uh, and, and yeah, so it, it definitely um, revealed the this this French colonial project for um, for what it was um, to an international audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so um, moving on, uh, you work with the concept uh, um, that you, you name intercolonial co- cooperation um, to describe the colonial powers, or one of the colonial powers' um, uh, attempts to um, uh, forestall decolonization in the post-World War II era. Um, and, uh, and, and you track how uh, the French worked alongside um, uh, the other European empires um, in technical and medical fields uh, yeah, so as to preempt calls for independence. This 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 part of your book was super interesting, um, and I want to know more about it. Um, so, can you just share with listeners um, like what uh, this looked like? Like, what did this cooperation look like, um, and why were colonial powers um, so keen to work together in this era? Um, I mean, perhaps you could tell the story of the Le Leçon Internationale de l'Enfance or um, the CCTA, which is an acronym I can't remember. Um, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that while, um, while the French and their other colonial colleagues um, from, the, from Britain or Belgium, um, I think while they're afraid of sort of international cooperation in the sense of like the UN or the World Health Organization, because that's when you're getting involved with these different delegations who may or may not um, you know, harbor anti-colonial sentiments is the, you know, how the French are thinking about them. Um, I think that they did actually accept that there was some intrinsic value in cooperation, especially in the field of public health. Because if you think about diseases, um, diseases don't respect national boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't respect, you know, boundaries between different colonial territories. And so um, I think that they see that there's some fundamental value in cooperating about issues of, um, of issues of health. So, they, they're the sort of two intercolonial efforts that I talk about in the book. Um, the first one is the CCTA, which stands for the Commission for Technical Cooperation in Africa, south of the Sahara, uh, but it's generally referred to by its French acronym, um, so CCTA. Uh, and this was essentially um, an intercolonial development organization that would work on questions of health, um, questions of environment, uh, things related to education. And it was it was essentially an effort to kind of uh, preempt all of the various, uh, you know, UN organizations, UNICEF, uh, UNESCO, World Health Organization. It was a way to be able to say, look, you know, we we also believe in in cooperation, but we're going to do it among the people that have this sort of deep, longstanding knowledge of the African continent. Uh, we don't need someone that doesn't have that knowledge coming in and telling us what to do. Um, and then with the International Children's Center, um, the CIE, uh, that was a sort of French attempt to uh, preempt uh, UNICEF involvement um, or, or too much UNICEF involvement. And actually, um, 
the the CIE was a joint French and UNICEF venture. Um, when UNICEF was founded, it was actually not intended to be a permanent organization. Um, so the United Nations um, International Children's Emergency Fund, uh, the emergency in this case meaning sort of temporary post World War II. Um, and the French uh, went to UNICEF, and um, this was under the leadership of Robert Debray, who was the father of later Prime Minister Michel Debray. Um, and he went to UNICEF and he said, you know, I really envision uh, a permanent international children's organization, but under French leadership, and I would like to sort of spearhead this effort. Um, and actually, the International Children's Center was funded, I believe, um, 60% by UNICEF and 40% by the French government, and later um, that switched. Uh, and it was really an attempt to build children's health programs um, and things related to the development of the child uh, throughout the world, but with a specific focus, at least in the beginning, on French territories in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the more critical points of your book is that uh, European colonial powers' resistance to global health initiatives um, uh, were um, actually contributors, um, at least in part, um, to, the, um, to certain failures in the field of global health uh, in the post-war era. And so uh, you write um, that the pushback against internationalization shaped the landscape of public health as much as, if not more than, the international organizations themselves. Um, can you elaborate on this, um, uh, this really interesting thesis? Do you have an example that, um, that might um, illustrate uh, um, what you're talking about here? Yeah. So then this is, this is actually a follow-up to your earlier question about, you know, the office uh, being set up in Brazzaville. So um, once the French realized that this is a mistake to have put the office in Brazzaville, um, they sort of shift gears and the strategy becomes uh, not, you know, do we decide if we put this headquarters here or not, but um, the strategy shifts to, uh, they essentially want to stop the WHO from doing anything. Um, so they consistently vote against expanding the office, um, and uh, they they essentially want they sort of wanted to just be kind of a symbolic presence in Africa and not to really do a lot. Um, one of the things that I think this uh, this most impacts is if you're thinking about things like the malaria eradication program, um, so MEP. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa is obviously one of the regions of the world that is most um, impacted by malaria. Um, And while there eventually are some pilot programs um, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa during during the program, it's not really the first place that malaria eradication gets started. and eventually, if you if you so if you look at what happens with malaria eradication, actually in a lot of places it is successful, um, but it ends up the eradication part is a failure. Um, but malaria is eliminated in um, you know along the the southeast coast of the United States, along the Mediterranean, and essentially it becomes concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I, I think that you can really trace this back to um, efforts to keep the WHO for, from doing anything. So um, one of the activities I have my students do in my public health in Africa course is I have, we, we, um, we reenact the uh, 1950 World Health Assembly. Um, and the thing that I give them as a source is I give them, um, you know, they have, to, they have to each act out like a different delegation. So, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean um, the European, 
the European office. Um, and I give them the little slice from the director general's report. Um, and so, so all the other delegations come up and talk about all of the programs they're doing. They're doing, um, you know, various vaccination campaigns, um, campaigns related to water campaigns, um, against, uh, malaria, smallpox, um, eventually polio. Um, and then you've got the Africa delegation. And I think like, you know, every other group has this like 15 page packet of all these things they're doing. And the African group comes up and, you know, they have, you know, two little pages of some, you know, various minor projects that they're working on. Um, and I think really this is a direct result of, um, colonial efforts to keep the organization from really, um, expanding its activities throughout the continent, um, throughout the course of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, just incredibly fascinating and, uh, and and very troubling. So, as we're moving to the end of your book, um, I um, just have a couple more questions. Um, so, so first, you lay out um, sort of the the broader dimensions of decolonization. So, uh, you know, decolonization was a process that obviously affected the lives of colonized people, the people that were living in the colonies. Um, but it also affected relations between empires um, and relations between former empires and former colonies. Um, and so it's this uh, latter relationship that I'd like to um, discuss. How did the UN and WHO um, affect the relationship or shape the relationship um, or enable the relationship between um, Europeans and Africans in the post, uh, um, sort of the, yeah, the, the post-decolonization era? Uh, I think that, so that's a really interesting question. And I think um, what, what happens, so um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, in terms of the French empire, um, Guinea uh, becomes independent first in 1958 after the um, French government has a referendum. Um, do you want to be part of France still circle? Yes or no. Um, everyone says yes, except Guinea says no. Um, so Guinea becomes independent first in 1958. Um, and then all the other colonies become independent in 1960. And actually, um, it's very interesting because the French actually stay part of the WHO Africa office through the 1960s. Um, and I believe that this is because um, Réunion, the island, mm-hmm. is, is in the Africa region and it's still part of France today. And so I think that that is how they maintain a foothold um, in the Africa office for another decade after the majority of um, the French Empire in Africa has decolonized. And the British also... Um, uh, maintain some kind of a foothold in the office as well. And what's very interesting is that immediately after decolonization, this sort of um, intercolonial cooperation that they have put so much work into developing immediately unravels. Um, and you start to see these really new, interesting relationships forged between uh, the French and Francophone Africans. And actually a lot of the battle is... Um, surrounding the language um, used in the WHO Africa office. Um, So the French accuse uh, the British and the Anglophone Africans of trying to colonize the WHO Africa office. And that's the, that's the, um, that's the language that they use. They say, you know, we think that these people are trying to colonize the WHO Africa office and we have to do something about it. Um, So actually, the French government sends someone to go talk to uh, various government officials in Francophone Africa to say, you know, we don't think you realize how serious of a threat this is. Um, And they talk about things like the various memos that are sent out from the office. And they say that they they come out in a language um, that 
that um, that doesn't resemble anything near proper French. And that the French are essentially being marginalized from this organization that they say they helped build. Um, and so I think what's really interesting is seeing kind of how those alliances really shift after um, 1960. And, um, you, know, at the, at, you know, in 1961, that sort of first initial um, meeting of the, of the Africa region after independence, you know, you have this speech by the Malian delegate and he says, you know, it's really great to see everybody here. I really hope that there are some faces that we don't see here next year, um, wow. meaning the French <laughs> and the British. Uh, and then at the end of the meeting, you know, you see these same, the same delegate, you know, shaking hands really warmly with the French delegation and, you know, expressing like a desire to continue working together. We'll see you here next year. And so it's very interesting to see how even over the course of that, that one sort of set of meetings that, um, you know, this really does shift, uh, you know, from being a battle between people who wanted to hang on to empire and people who wanted to decolonize to a battle between the sort of Francophone and Anglophone camps within the office. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Great. So I, I just have one more question about the book. Um, so, you know, you're writing about a period that is, you know, 60 to 70, 70 years ago. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's several decades, but it's not too long ago. Can we see, um, you know, in 2019, the legacies of um, some of these stories that you've told? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I think I think if you think especially about the, the um, recent Ebola epidemic, I think that one of the things that um, journalists and global health officials immediately pointed to was the way that um, the way that colonial governments underdeveloped African health systems. Um, and they certainly did. But in my mind, that's really only part of what they did. So they not only um, underdeveloped healthcare in Africa, but they also uh, sort of at a time when the WHO was really getting, um, really hitting the ground running in other areas of the world. Uh, they really weren't doing that in Africa. So I think that the WHO also has this sort of long history of, of less involvement in a place that probably needed global health programming more than anywhere else in the world. So um, I think that we absolutely can um, sort of still feel the ramifications of that today. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to leave the book. Um, what is the next project that you're working on or considering starting to work on? Uh, so I actually, um, I'm, I'm on sabbatical this year, so I'm actually uh, working on a new book project right now. Um, so the new book project is about the history of travel and decolonization, and the, the title is Traveling to the End of Empire. Hmm. Um, and so this is going to be a global history of tourism and decolonization from 1945 to the present. Um, and I spent some time this summer working in the, it's going to be a global history, so not just focused on France. Um, I spent some time uh, already working in the colonial archives in France last year, and then um, I was able to be in the British National Archives this summer. And then this semester, I've been in residence at the Library of Congress, and I've been, um, I've been reading a lot of really interesting travel guides and magazines and just all kinds of different sources engaging with the history of travel in um, places that were formerly colonized, but also um, in the former metropole and thinking about how the process of decolonization really transformed, um, 
travel. And uh, sort of how I got into this was uh, some of the uh, some of the comments from uh, from the reviewers were about for the first book were about you know how do you how do you make this diplomatic history come alive for readers when really you're you're writing about the history of, of people sitting in meetings. Um, you know, one of the things that I encountered when I was doing the first book was, um, you know, you have these meeting transcripts and you're, and you're looking, uh, for sort of the, the drama and you're trying to read between the lines. And, um, sometimes I'd find these incredible doodles on the, on the, on the meeting agenda, um, or on the transcripts. And I was thinking, okay, I'm like, I'm looking for the drama. I'm looking for like the really interesting narrative and I'm trying to read between the lines. But I think that what's happening is that, you know, these these uh, these health officials, these um, government officials, are sitting in these incredibly important but also incredibly boring meetings. Yes. yes. Um, and how do you how do you tell that story in a really engaging way? And so uh, one of the one of the suggestions that I got from. Um, the, the, I got two really incredibly, um, helpful sets of feedback from the, uh, from the, the peer reviewers. And one of the things that was suggested was, you know, think about people traveling to these places, right? Like what would it be like for someone to travel to Brazzaville to go, um, be part of the WHO office staff? Um, and so I sort of like kind of puzzled through, okay, well, how would I do that? Um, and so the very last source that I consulted before I, I submitted the final book manuscript was I went up to the Schomburg Center um, of the New York Public Library in Harlem, and I looked at some travel guides from the 1950s. Um, and I looked at this travel guide that was about um, Brazzaville and Leopoldville, and I tried to get a sense from reading it, like, what would someone have experienced uh, traveling here from the United States, from the Caribbean, from Europe, from other places in Africa? Um, and I saw this, this photograph of, um, some people kind of sitting in this air, this airport cafe, um, in Brazzaville and the, you know, caption said something like, you know, you know, travelers lounging about in the super modern, you know, um, airport cafe at the Maya Maya airport, um, and I, and I, I found that photograph so fascinating. It was a kind of like a, a mixed group of people. So you had some people that looked European, some people that looked African, everyone looked very modern, um, you know, sitting there in their suits, smoking their cigarettes and drinking their espressos. And I, I, I really got this uh, desire to sort of interrogate, well, like, you know, what was this really like for people? It, like, is this scene what all travelers experienced or um you know, what, what roadblocks were created or taken away with decolonization in terms of travel. And, you know, for the case of, of organizations like the World Health Organization or the CCTA, some people had to travel uh, through places in Africa that were even more segregated than Brazzaville. So, um, you know, someone traveling from um, other parts of the empire, uh, travelers of color passing through places like Kampala um, and not being able to find hotel accommodations. Um, as they travel overnight. So uh, this was sort of what led me to think more, uh, w- wanting to think more deeply about the intersections between travel and tourism and decolonization. Well, that is a book that I will be eagerly waiting to read. Um, so that, 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 that really sounds like a fantastic project. Um, and Jess, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it was a real pleasure talking about um, your book, uh, The Colonial Politics of Global Health. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, So I've been speaking with Jessica Lynn Pearson about her book, The Colonial Politics of Global Health, and you've been listening to New Books in History.